the end of uh, a short series called The Bridge from Inward Beliefs to Outward Benefits. What, what are the benefits about really just the benefit, outward benefit of making our beliefs known? In other words, of influence, outward influence across cultures. We talked about the first week, we talked about bridging across differences last week, bridging across cultures, now bridging across generations. How's that facing outward? Well, First week, we, we talked about the fact that every marriage is cross-cultural, is it not? We talked about, you know, the, whether the forks face up or down. I mean, there's so many cultural differences, even within our own households, so much more than from one generation to the next. How do we bridge? How do we bring influence to next generations? What is the thing that influences more than anything else? You know, generations are measured... About 20 years, the, you think of the baby boomers starting in 46 to 64, and then, and then uh, Generation X from 64 to 76, and then uh, the millennials pick up after that, Generation Z after that. I don't know where we go from here. I don't know, we start over with AA or something, I don't know. But that span of generations marks significant cultural differences. How do you... Influence. You know, somebody said that the, the passion of one generation can become the duty of the next generation and a burden to the third. So how do we live in such a way that inspires the next generation? Maybe it's, maybe it's to be relevant, just to stay relevant. You know, for example, uh, wearing the right thing. I, I hear that, that the 90s, 1990s apparel is coming back. That's good. Because some of you guys have kept your cargo shorts, you know, so you can just start wearing those again. And maybe you're going to be relevant just because you've got the right apparel. Is that how we influence the next generation, is relevance? Well, I think what we're going to see from 1 Peter 2 is that the key to influencing generation to generation is commitment, the nature of our commitment. From the Word of God, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's Word this morning. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen, and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Father, we remember this morning that we are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, both in life and death, not to ourselves, but to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, you are the word. Claim all of us, we pray, as your own this morning, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, speaking of the 1990s, there's an old romantic comedy where two women are, are competing for the same guy. And, uh, of course, you know, all romantic comedies in the uh, 1990s had to do with Julia Roberts. And she, uh, she, she baits this, her rival into singing karaoke one night. And she did that because she wanted to humiliate her because she knew she couldn't carry a tune. And it was evident from the first note that she was terrible, but she commits to singing this song wholeheartedly, and she wins the room, even though it was just awful, and every, every note was out of tune, everybody was cheering her on. I mean, even when it's ugly, commitment wins the room. Commitment inspires I was watching, I went to a, a golf tournament a couple years ago, and uh, Phil Mickelson had just finished his round, and I followed him over to the range, and I watched him hit ball after ball after ball. He had just finished 18 holes and had done marvelously well, and there he was on the range by himself, just hitting one ball after another after another into, in his 50s. There he is. Commitment inspires. What's the nature of commitment? According to our call to believe and to share the gospel, what is the nature of that commitment? Let's think about that this morning, the nature of that commitment. Let's look at, first of all, I want to look at the results of the commitment that we make. Results, what, what can we expect as the results of commitment? And then let's back up from the results and look at where is the place of commitment and then what is required of us for commitment. So results, you know, let's look with the end in mind. Results, what's the place of commitment along the way and then what's required to put commitment in its place? So first, the results. The results of commitment in this place as a church, as a body of believers... The results inspire the next generation in its unity that is something more than the sum of its parts. 
Now, that's a, that's a mouthful, so I'm going to help you understand this by giving you an image about it. Because this whole idea of something being more than the sum of its parts, and right now we're talking about the unity of our commitment. Commitment produces results, and the results are a, a, a unity that's more than the sum of its parts. What does that mean? Well, you know, if, if you wanted to explain to somebody who'd never seen an airplane fly, didn't know what an airplane was, you wouldn't take the parts and you know, explain it that way. You wouldn't show the parts. Or even if you were to happen upon Jockey Ridge back when Orville and Wilbur Wright were putting their first, their flying machine together, you might not understand what that contraption was. Even though it had wings and all that, you might surmise that it looks like a bird, so maybe they think they can fly in it. But when you see them take off, you see all the parts working together. And you realize that all these parts are indescribable apart from their purpose together. And that is flight. You think about that. that you, we take all these parts from, from different... And, and today, how sophisticated these air, airplanes are, all these different parts. And the result is something entirely other. It's to fly. It's to go from one place to another Verse 5 has always sort of rubbed me wrong until recently when I looked at it and I realized this isn't just a mixed metaphor. I'm talking about living stones. It's kind of awkward at first, isn't it? You're a living stone as part of the body of Christ. You're a living stone. It's kind of, hmm, that's, that's kind of strange. But let's explore exactly what he means. What he's getting at is a unity that's more than the sum of its parts. Something that when, when all the different parts come together, there's something else that is substantial here that really makes uh, an impression on the next generation. You know, the old nursery rhyme, uh, rhyme uh, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, see all the people. I used to think, well, that's wrong because the people are the church. That's it. The rest of it doesn't matter. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, see all the people. I had this sort of, Almost a Gnostic idea that, well, you know, the church isn't the, the, the church and the steeple. It's just the people. That's not true. That's not true. Everything that we create together in Jesus' name is rendered unto him. Everything. God loves stuff. He made all this stuff. And so the question is, is how are we stewarding it? What is it? not only composed of, but what does it, what unity does it make up? What is the, the whole of it? Now, are, are you with me now? I'm, I'm building something. I'm, I'm going to take you somewhere. I'm going to take one more step. Now, first, you know, you know the concept of something being more, being more than the sum of its parts. You're living stones being built together into a great spiritual house. Not just the people, but everything, all of our efforts together that we do. All of the structure, including our committees. You know, when I was in seminary, I think I've, I've confessed this before. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had this attitude that, that whatever church I led wasn't going to have committees, all right? It was going to have teams. Teams, it, do you get it? There's no difference. I just used a different word <laughs> because teams just seems to feel better. It's more relational, 
right? And, and so no committee structure, just teams, because I'm a relational guy, and so we're going to make sure that the structure of the church is relational. Well, that's just ridiculous. Whatever we build can bring glory to God when we understand how it works together to be more than the sum of its parts. Now, let me bring it home in terms of this point. I'm going to give you an example from this week of where I saw us working. It, it just emerged that this church is more than the sum of its parts, but the parts matter and the structure matters. We were sitting in a committee and we were talking about congregational care. And the subject was, how do we structure congregation? You, you know, you, every one of you who is part of this church is part of a care group. We have six different care groups. And so that's a structure. You know, here's the church, here's the steeple. That's structure that we create. For what? For the value of caring for one another. Now, in the middle of this discussion, we were talking about how, how's this working, you know, uh, who's in charge of it, and, is it, and what's the system, and when something happens in this care group, how does the information flow, and, and all the rest of it. And, it, and we just kept coming back to the, the fact that this church almost, almost doesn't need the structure because you all care for each other so well. And we kept using the word organic, you know, one of my grandfathers said he didn't like organized religion. And I always thought, well, do you like the disorganized kind? I mean, what is it? Every, every organism is organized. And what, what, I, what I was sitting there in that committee meeting realizing is that we organize around a particular value. That's what an institution is. We see what's worth organizing around, what's worth loving, what's worth doing, what's worth investing our lives in, and we organize around it. Why? to see more of it, to magnify it, to make it more possible for more people to enter in. I've been in a church years and years ago, far, far, far away. And it was amazing. As soon as the end of the service was, as soon as the service ended, it was like you could snap your fingers and people were gone and there was no cars in the parking lot. They didn't even talk to each other. What am I getting at? I'm getting at that we organize around certain values because we encourage each other according to the values to which we're called. And what's amazing to me is that even though we have this organizational structure around caring for each other, it happens anyway. Why? Because we're a plane in flight. We are more than the sum of our parts. Does that mean we can just do away with the structure? No, because what that does is it invites more people into it. It shows them what's important to us, what's valuable to us. We organize around what we value. That's an institution. And so as a result of organizing around that value, we see people just popping like popcorn in the way that they respond to the care needs what, what's the chicken? What's the egg? What, what came first? Was it the structure? Or was it the caring? Was it the caring? Was it the structure? Around and around she goes, I don't know. There's a certain percentage of you all who are just gifted and, and moved to care for one another. But the more we organize around the values that really define us as more than the sum of our parts, the more that people can see that everything we do here is a larger life together than we can explain by the parts. So, that's the result. 
That's the result. A unity, living stones built together into a spiritual house that brings glory to God and inspires the next generation by something that is more than the sum of its parts. Now, how do we, how do we achieve those results? We have to put commitment in its place, in its proper place. That's how we achieve those results, the results where we're more than the sum of our parts. We achieve that by putting commitment in its proper place, not as an add-on, an extra, an extracurricular of your life, but the very foundation of your life. Look at, look at verse 7. It says, it says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What's he talking about? This is a reference to the psalm that Tyler read just a few minutes ago, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner, the foundation stone. You all ever been a part of a, a build or maybe you're breaking ground and then you, you set the cornerstone? A lot of times it's symbolic. The idea is that, that there is... There is this stone upon which we are building the rest of the building. We're anchoring it. Well, what was the stone that was rejected? Well, I know this from spending a summer in England. I, I, I went to the cathedral there in Dur University of Durham, and I learned all about that the cathedral. I was, I was awed by this this. Um, magnificent structure, the largest vaulted ceiling, uh, entirely vaulted ceiling uh, in the world. And it was started in somewhere around 1000 AD, 1100 AD. And one of the things that amazed me was that the columns that were built there, some of them were compound columns, had ornate decorations but this, this in and of itself wasn't what blew me away. What blew me away was each block had that unifying decoration chiseled into it while it was still an individual stone lying out in a field. So that when they put it together, it all made sense. Isn't that incredible? I mean, the masons of that day, were the, they were the engineering minds. They were the ones who, who, who understood how things worked. And so when you think of a stone, which is the capstone or the keystone, it's a stone like this that the archway comes to and completes. Now imagine that you're building that in that day and age. I've just told you that you're designing something ahead of time. They designed the keystone, and then they designed the arch to fit this, this, the keystone. This is a metaphor for the Messiah, it is a metaphor for the Messiah. That Psalm 118 is all about Jesus. It's all about the Messiah. And all about the fact that this keystone, God intended from the very beginning that, that Jesus would be a certain profile. That, that just as, as we see that the expectations in Jesus' day were for him to be a conquering king, and yet he came as a suffering servant, you can see throughout Isaiah that the keystone was already fashioned. That throughout the whole Bible, you can see, even, even looking back at the Abraham and Isaac story and God providing the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, Jesus' profile 
as a keystone was to be the capstone of the Old Testament history. But that keystone was rejected. And in three days, what does Jesus say? Tear, I'll tear down this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. That means we recognize that this metaphor is all about Jesus being the cornerstone of our faith. And so it's, it's like that in terms of understanding where's the place of your faith? Where's the place of your commitment to your faith? Where's your com- place of your commitment to, to Jesus through this church? Where's your place? Where, where's his proper place? It's in the foundation, not as an extracurricular, not as an add-on, not, not as a leftover, not anything else but the whole of your life built on this commitment. You see, next generations can see the nature of our commitment. They can understand it. They can measure it. They can intuit whether or not this is something extra or added on or whether this is something foundational to you. And when it's foundational, how inspiring is that? It's like that story of uh, somebody walking up to three masons working alongside each other, and he comes to the first one and says, you know, what are you building? He says, I'm, I'm, I'm stacking stones. The second one says, I'm building a wall. And the third one says, I'm creating a masterpiece to the glory of God. It all depends on what your mindset is. Is your commitment a foundation to your life on which everything else is built? The nature of that commitment is the nature of the bridge you build to the next generation. Let me say that again. The nature of your commitment, whether it's foundation or add-on, is the nature of your influence with the next generation. Finally, if we think about the results that we want, a unity that's bigger than the sum of its parts, the, the place of commitment is the foundation. What's required to put our commitment in its proper place. What's required? And the answer is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Are we willing to be inconvenienced for our faith, for a pattern of faith that is expressed outwardly, not just in this sort of idealistic, in our minds kind of way, but the church and the steeple and the structure and the lifestyle the nature of our, the outward nature, the visible evidence of our commitment. What's required of us? Sacrifice. Are we willing to, in other words, bear one another's burdens? You know, I, I, was, I was thinking about several issues in our church, people who are really dealing with some difficult stuff right now. And I was just sitting on my back porch, feeling it. And I, rem- I was reminded that bearing one another's burdens is for real. I was burdened. Are we willing to be burdened by each other? Are we willing? to make a sacrifice, to be inconvenienced, to be even driven 
somewhat to distraction because of someone else's need. I was watching a little thing, uh, a little talk by Simon Senef, who has, has written a, a book that I really like. Uh, and I was watching him talk about the Navy SEALs. And, uh, and he was describing that, that the, the SEALs that make it through their, their SEAL boot camp, you know, the Navy SEALs, the elite uh, you know, f- uh, special force of, of the Navy, uh, the, the ones that make it through the boot camp are not the ones you would look at and think, oh, that guy's definitely going to make it through. You know, uh, not, not always the one who in outward appearance would seem like the toughest in the bunch. He said, he was asking several Navy SEALs, what was the key to making it through that, that sort of boot camp, I, I can't remember what they call it in particular, but what's the key to making it through the training, that, this sort of vetting process, the gateway? And every one of them said, it's, it's, it's one thing. When you're ready to give up, you focus on somebody else's need. Is that not amazing? The very principles of Scripture are written into the very blueprint, the fabric of our, of our relationships. When you push human nature to the very edge, what do we need? We need what Scripture prescribes. It's so hard for us when we're not pushed to the edge, when we're not in crisis, to recognize how much we need to serve someone else sacrificially, burdensome. This whole book that Peter is writing is within a, a season of severe persecution where, where men and women are laying down their lives for one another. It's, it's an inspirational book. It's one of the great letters of all time because he's describing, he's saying, so that when people, this is verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's he saying? He's saying the very nature of our commitment to one another in the midst of burdensome and sacrificial service inspires, inspires people far from God. Well, certainly it will inspire the next generation. I want to close with one little touch on something because many of you sitting here are like some of our officers that you'll hear from next week. You know the the number one pushback that we get when someone is approached to be an officer? You know the number one reason why they would push back and say, say, I'm not going to do it? Is it time? Is it the nature of their commitment? No. Over and over, I've heard it over and over again. They don't feel worthy of that call. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you think, what do I have to bring? All I have is weakness. All I have is a broken past. All I have is a storyline that didn't quite measure up. All I have is a lot of disappointments. How do I 
bring the kind of commitment that's going to inspire somebody else. Listen to what Thornton Wilder says. He says this, without your wound, where would your power be? I, I can see Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. When I am weak, yet I am strong, for his strength is perfected in weakness. Listen to this. Without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. The results, the place of commitment, the nature and requirement of our commitment. We're looking out at another year of ministry and mission. Let's look out together, shoulder to shoulder, in service. Let's pray together. Grateful God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the way that you walked this out in our midst, the way that, Lord, you saw that there was so much more to us than just a problem to solve, that you looked at us and, and recognized that, that, the, that, that the day can be redeemed because of what you've given to us. And so, Lord, in the quiet of these closing moments together, may we follow in your footsteps to bring you glory and influence in generations to come in this place and around the world. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.